But today she's going to talk about uh, something else, her, one of her many other books, which is about uh, reporting uh, disasters. So she'll speak for about 20, 30 minutes, something yep. like that, uh, yep. and then there'll be the usual time for question and answer. So apologies to you, Suzanne, for the delay, but over to you. Okay, uh, thanks, thanks very much indeed for inviting me. Is, is it okay if I sit down? Mm. Can everybody see? Yeah? Is that right? Okay, good. Um, Okay, um, I'm delighted to be back here um, and to talk about something which is very, um, very much sort of uh, work that I've been doing over, over the past past few years, and which I, I've published on um, not just this book but quite a number of other things about, particularly about reporting the developing world and how we portray a faraway humanitarian crises. So my interest, really, um, as an academic, is to understand how the media report faraway humanitarian crises, but, and what it is that makes us switch on and switch off, and also um, what I'm going to be talking about uh, in, a, in a short while is the sort of interaction between this sort of coverage and, and policy, policy making. Um, invariably, it's the media that plays a huge role in constructing these crises to capture our attention. Because we're not going to be present on the ground where such things take place, we're going to be dependent on media coverage as our only way to relate and understand. Um, if a crisis isn't reported, it might as well not exist, except for those who are in the immediate vicinity. We've got no other means of information. So to that extent, it's different from a lot of, a lot of other news, where you've got all sorts of other ways of verifying what's going on. And, and you can, uh, you know, if you're talking about the health service or something like that, there's lots, lots of other means of information. You can talk to people and pick up other other means of, of verification. Uh, far away humanitarian crises only exist to the extent that, that the, media, the media reports them to us. Um, and also, um, I was, I'm sort of, um, was taken by something I, I saw the other day. There's a new dictionary of journalism just being published. And one of the quotes from that by Tony Harkup, who's a kind of well-known uh, media academic in this country, um, and he says, what the best journalists have in common is that they tell us things we didn't even know we didn't know. And I think that's very much the case when we're looking about, about faraway happenings in, uh, at the other side of the world. So as a background to this, um, I just want to say, talk for a, a couple of minutes about how we actually perceive faraway places and how our sort of um, perceptions of, of, of foreign news are, are sort of in, not so much distorted, but very much influenced by sort of where we're coming from. So this is an example. Um, this is taken from just uh, Guardian coverage in 2010, and this is the, the way that the British sees the rest of the world. So according to news stories, so of course the UK is the sort of massive um, centre of the universe, if you like. Um, but that's pretty obvious. But if you look at other parts of the world, it's really um, quite quite extraordinary this idea that you know certain parts of the world are so much more important um, to the way we, we perceive things than, than others. Um, you know, obviously, you know the United States is sort of swollen up um, like that. Canada barely exists. There's a little sliver there. Um, but what I'm more interested in is, is parts of the developing world. You know, the, the fact that Africa has this sort of shrunken perception. And this is in 2010. And, and similarly, similarly, South America, and that this is this is something that you know I think as journalists and, and as editors uh, is something that we should we should be very much in mind. And and there's also this idea that that um, news goes to where the journalists are rather than journalists going to where the news are, and the way that we position 
foreign correspondents or we, we position um, journalists in the places that we, that we think we want to hear from rather than the other way around. Um, and one other um, example uh, of that is in, uh, just going forward one year, this is, this is 2011, British views of the world. Um, and again, this is, you know, extraordinary sort of distortions here. Again, the United States, huge there. Um, but this is the time of the Arab Spring, so the Arab um, <coughs> Rising. So they, there you get a sort of different, different distortion of, I'm not distortion, I mean, the, the, world, the world looks some, somewhere different. Um, and so, you know, th this all goes to, to show that this whole notion of news values and what we, what we see as important um, can sometimes be a fairly random, random occurrence. You know, what is it that makes, makes certain parts of the world important um, and worthy of coverage and other parts of the world are pretty much ignored? Um, and there's all sorts of, I mean, you know, one could talk for hours about news values and how journalists construct news values. Um, but I'll, I'll just sort of make a, a, a just a, a few there's just a few um, uh, sort of points I want to, to highlight for this. I mean, first of all, there's this notion that journalists have of this cal what's called the calculus of death, the idea that if you have a serious injury happening just outside, that's worth a death in the next city, which is worth ten deaths in the next country, a hundred deaths in the same <coughs> continent, equivalent to a thousand deaths in a faraway continent, and that. That often is the case if you look at the sort of the coverage and the way that, that certain things are, are sort of valued by, by news organisations in, in terms of stories. Um, and there was one New York Times study, for example, which, which shows this in a different way, and that was looking at coverage of earthquakes. Um, and they came to the conclusion, um, looking at different earthquakes in different places, that one Filipino is worth 22 Italians. <laughs> And that, that was according to the New York Times headlines of, of, of two contrasting earthquakes. Um, so this, this sort of randomness of, of how we perceive things and where they happen is, is I think, as journalists, is something that we should, we should always be incredibly aware of. Um, and a couple more examples of that. Um, this is an image of, you probably recognise it, from Hurricane Katrina in, in 2005. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. It was a huge story at the time. Continues to be a big story. People look back at that. We still hear a lot about it. Um, you know, a lot of devastation, um, a lot of uh, you know, in a large number of, of deaths for for a, um, for a for a crisis in, in that part of the world. However, just the same time in 2005, in the same month, there was another hurricane. Didn't happen very far away from here. Uh, had a similar scale of devastation and similar death toll. But I wonder if anybody can even remember what that hurricane was. Guatemala South. Guatemala, it was. I yes. remember covering it. Yes. Hurricane. <laughs> you don't. Yeah, Hurricane <laughs> Sam happened at the same time. Had a couple of stories about it and then totally vanished from view. And we certainly had no retrospectives and kind of looking back at what happened and looking at the rebuilding and so on. So that, that is a kind of very crude example of how we sort of uh, value, value certain parts of the world and things happening in one place rather than another. Um, and nowhere is this more the case, of course, than, than in Africa. And this is something that, that um, I've sort of done, done quite, a, quite a bit of work on over the years and which is, you know, continues... Um, to 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 be something I I, th I think is you know extraordinarily interesting and extraordinary and, and very worrying. 
Um, and I'm just going to give you three examples of the randomness of the way in which we cover Africa. I mean, there, there are lots of current examples that, that we can talk about maybe later in questions, but th these are just three, three, three particular examples which, which I highlight. One of them is the civil war in Angola. Huge, huge story. You know, half a million people died over, over the, this, through the extent of that period. And yet it barely, barely ever made, made the news agenda, certainly in this country, in, in, the, sort of, in the anglo saxon world. This is um, the famous Joseph Kony in northern Uganda. Now that did become a story, but it only really became a story that most people in the West were aware of in 2012 with the, the Kony 12 to 12 video, when it was actually a story, when things were really in a terrible, terrible um, state in, in northern Uganda, when the, there was these terrible displacements of population, um, people were um, one of the biggest internal displacements of the population at the time, the, the um, child soldier, uh, you know, the, the kidnappings and all, all of that sort of thing. When all of that was happening, this story barely made, made, made the headlines. There were a few um, occasional isolated pieces about it. But considering the seriousness of the story at that time, it barely made an impact. Of course, in 2012, when it suddenly did make this sort of rather bizarre internet, um, Facebook, in fact, because of the, the NGO Invisible Children, he, Joseph Kenny had long gone from northern Uganda, and it, it really wasn't anything like the sort of scale of the story that, that, that it had been all, the, all those years before. So that, that's a bizarre, bizarre conjunction. And then um, the, other, the other example I'm going to point to now is, um, is Darfur. Um, that did make did make the news quite quite often in, in sort of around the, around the period sort of 2005 2006 2007. It was a story, but I would contend it became very much a story because there were celebrities like George Clooney sort of you know rushing there to, to highlight the, the story, and, and it became very much a, a story of celebrities focusing attention on what was going on in Darfur. Today in Darfur, there is still a huge problem. There are still the Many of the same issues going on that were at that, at that time when it was, you know, briefly on our news agenda. And yet, when did you last read, read about Darfur uh, or, or, or look at, find a story about Darfur that you didn't, as a specialist, go, go particularly looking for? So th those are those are three examples. But I mean, as I say, there's plenty of others we could talk about today: South Sudan, or Central African Republic, and so on, that really are are very sort of under undercovered. Um, and we have this sort of continuing problem of, of, of this, the missing stories, the stories we don't hear about. Um, there's, there's a phenomenon which um, one of my colleagues has, has written about as stealth wars, these wars that go on in, in different parts of the world, yet we barely hear about. Um, and another, other stories which, which hardly register at all. The greatest humanitarian catastrophe in the second half of the 20th century was in China was the famine in, in China in, in 1959 to 61. It is now estimated that probably 40 million people died in China at that point. Yet there was no media coverage, there were no real images of that, and it's never been reported, and even today in China. Just as if you Google Tiananmen Square rising if you sit in China, if you, if you Google the famine, you get very, very sketchy information. And in Chinese, in the history books, it's talked about as three difficult years. I mean, considering it was a, you know, extraordinary, um, terrible, terrible humanitarian 
catastrophe at that point. It, it's extraordinary that it, it, it has no sort of place in the kind of um, media, media awareness. And why should we, sort of moving on from that, one of the reasons that, that we should be so bothered about the fact that certain things are completely missing from, from sort of media attention in, in faraway parts of the world is that there is almost a direct line between media attention and the ability that we can raise awareness and then also raise funds and, and, and help. Uh, and the example I want to give here is of the Niger crisis in 2005, which was a, a, a famine. Um, it wasn't a, a very, very, on the scale of famines, it wasn't, it was a sort of severe shortage, but uh, it was certainly a crisis in, in, in food production and, and food um, entitlements. <coughs> And this is one of the, I mean, I, I highlight this in the book, but um, I'll just go over it here. But So that crisis happened in about, was sort of brought to wider awareness in 2000, beginning of 2005. By May, the UN launched an appeal for £16 million to, to send food aid to Niger in, in, um, uh, on the sort of edge of the Sahara. By June, July, two, two months later, only only a fraction of that had been raised. You know, for two months that appeal had been going and it barely managed and it was tailing off the amounts that, that were being raised. On July 19th, for particular reasons, um, and I can go into that, the BBC decided to send a correspondent to Niger and she did um, two uh, very moving, powerful reports um, which went out near the top of the BBC News on that, that day. And a week later, 17 million dollars have been raised. So that's a very clear example of the way that a uh, focus on media can have a huge impact and why you know, we should be concerned about uh, the sort of interaction between media coverage and, and uh, aid. But what I really want to talk about today, that's, that's sort of all by way of introduction, but I really want to talk about today is, and what I'm most interested in is, is the way that media coverage also affects policy, how it affects what, what um, international community and what governments are able to do in terms of um, uh, affecting um, faraway humanitarian crises. Um, and what I'm going to do is highlight that by looking at one of the most famous reports of humanitarian coverage, uh, which actually was some time ago, a lot of you might barely been born then, but or, or certainly weren't probably watching, watching much television. Um, and the re but the reason I want to go back and look at something that happened a while ago, and why I've used that as a kind of template for looking at the present, because I, I really used history in order to illuminate what goes on now, is that history is a brilliant way of, of telling these stories, because when I've done this by getting freedom of information requests, I've talked to all the key players who were involved there, and because it's it was sort of 20, 25 years afterwards, they were, you know, including people like Paddy here, who I interviewed for, for a book, uh, but lots of other politicians and the journalists who were involved. People are prepared to be honest to you, they will talk to you in a much franker way when they're looking back, when they come to the end of their careers, when they're retired or are no longer in that, that job. So you can get a much better insight as to what was really going on, what people were really trying to do um, when they were re reacting to particular things. So that's quite interesting. And then also the documents are available. I got access to a lot of BBC documents, um, government documents, which showed what the sort of policy was going on at, at the time and the sort of uh, reaction to, these, um, uh, to this humanitarian um, coverage. 
Um, and so I'm going to use that in order to, to highlight sort of four fallacies about the, the way that we re report such crises. But um, I want to, first of all, show you a little bit of this, this report, which was uh, to cover, this, this was the coverage of a famine in Ethiopia, which was reported on the BBC by this guy here, Michael Burke, who was a BBC Southern African reporter. He went to cover this, um, he went to cover this famine uh, almost by accident, and uh, it was extraordinary that his report then hit the top, the top of the BBC News. It was a seven-minute report, which was unheard of to cover a remote part of Africa in, in uh, seven, you know, in seven minutes at the top of the news. So I'm just going to show you a little bit of the of the report first, and then um, uh, talk about sort of how how this report then sort of reverberated around the world. In Ethiopia, seven million people are threatened by starvation. Thousands have already died. The famine caused by drought is the worst in living memory, and now the rains have failed again for the third year in succession. The relief organizations are doing all they can, but there just isn't enough food to go around. One of the worst hit areas is in the north of the country, where the problem has been complicated by two secessionist wars in Eritrea and Tigray. 40,000 refugees have converged on the town of Coram in the hope of getting some food and medical aid. Our correspondent, Michael Burke, has been back to Coram after four months and he found the situation far worse. Dawn, and as the sun breaks through the piercing chill of night on the plain outside Coram, it lights up a biblical famine, now in the 20th century. This place, so workers here, is the closest thing to hell on earth. Thousands of wasted people are coming here for help. Many find only death. They flood in every day from villages hundreds of miles away, dulled by hunger, driven beyond the point of desperation. 15,000 children here now, suffering, confused, lost. Death is all around. A child or an adult dies every 20 minutes. Forum, an insignificant town, has become a place of grief. The relief agencies do what they can. Save the Children Fund are caring for more than 7,000 babies. Every day they weigh them on a sling, then compare their weight with their height. By this rule of thumb, one in three is severely malnourished, starved to the point of death. This morning another 114 babies have arrived. The choice of who can be helped and who can't among the constant stream of newcomers is heartbreaking. There's not enough food for half these people. Rumours of a shipment can set off panic. As on most days, the rumours were false. For many here, there would be no food again today. Two months ago, there were 10,000 people here. Now the latest harvesters failed, there are 40,000. There's nothing like enough food in the country, not enough transport to move it if there was. These people have waited all morning. They want food, they're getting clothes. Those naked and most needy are marked by a pen stroke on their foreheads before the distribution begins. An armed guard sits on the small bundles of cast-off clothing sent from countries in Europe. 
A few jackets, trousers and sweaters, once worn in the wealthy West, now handed out to starving people who have to live in the open through nights when the temperature drops to little over freezing point. Today, only a tiny amount of grain is being given out to those who have brought in firewood. People scrabble in the dirt as they go for each individual grain of wheat. For some, it may be the only food they've had for a fortnight or more. The Ethiopian government tries to persuade these people to go home, but that would make death certain. Better to camp here. Some of the very worst are packed into big sheds. 7,000 now, most apparently dying of malnutrition, pneumonia and the diseases that prey on the starving. This three-year-old girl was beyond any help, unable to take food, attached to a drip but too late. The drip was taken away. Only minutes later, while we were filming, she died. Um, so, as I said, that, that report is seven minutes, um, but I think I want to. to um, I think you can get some sort of sense of what of what um, what was being shown. Um, and it then was taken up by um, 425 stations right across the world. So this was kind of an age before viral media, but effectively this that clip did did really become a viral. A sensation right around the world. It won endless awards, and uh, it, it then inspired um, all sorts of extraordinary fundraising on the back of it. Um, but but what I want to focus on now is kind of how how this how this reporting happened and what what was sort of really really going going on at the time. Um, and the first thing is the idea that this was reported, if you think about it, as a sudden news event. It wasn't. Approach. I mean, famine doesn't happen overnight. Famine is a very, very long-term process. There were people trying to draw attention to this famine in 1982. There were aid agencies there. There were even some journalists trying to draw attention to it. But nobody really <coughs> wanted to know that, that they were drawing attention to the fact that there was likely, likely to be food shortages. It was then reported as this extraordinary event, you know, this has just happened, quick, this is breaking news, and it hit the, the top of the top of the news agenda. So that's the first thing I, I want to point to, that the idea that, that a, a famine can ever be a sudden breaking news event like that is already a fallacy. But it wasn't just the way that the reporting happened, it was also the way that the government, the British government and other governments, the same in the United States, um, reported, responded to it. The, uh, the Foreign Secretary, the next day, after that Michael Burke report I showed you, the next day there was an emergency um, motion, uh, debate in the House of Commons where the Foreign Secretary of the time, Mrs. Thatcher's Foreign Secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe, stood up and said, this is terrible, we've just realised there's a famine going on in northern Ethiopia, isn't that awful? And we're going to donate um, uh, five million pounds to that. But it's very clear from all the documents that I've looked at that he was perfectly well aware that he knew there was a famine going on there and he'd known that for months before. There were ambassadors writing him reports. Even one of his junior ministers had, had, had written to him saying, look, we, we ought to do something. There's this terrible food crisis happening in northern Ethiopia. But he completely ignored it. Um, I mean, the government chose to ignore that. The government really weren't, weren't, weren't interested at the time. So that's, that's, that's the first thing to draw your attention to, that, that sort of politically... It then was very convenient to see it as this 
this thing that had suddenly happened and here was the government you know being such a caring understanding government because of the impact of this media report not because of what was actually going out there on the ground and he was seen to to seen he wanted to be seen to be um to be responding straight away to the to this apparent uh this apparent event that, that, that had just happened so that's that's the first fallacy the second one is the way that the, the um the uh, famine was actually framed as, an, as a news story. Um, if we look at the work, who, you've probably heard of the, the Nobel um, laureate, the economist Amartya Sen, who's written a lot about the fact that, that famine is, uh, there's a very close relationship between famine, democracy, and a free press. There's not much evidence of famines occurring in countries which have a free press. There might be um, food... Um, food problems, malnutrition, and food distribution problems, but not the scale of famine that, that, that we just saw there. Um, there's a direct relationship, which is one of the sort of key things that, that he has, has highlighted, between a, a democratic society with a free press that can push government into stopping that, those kinds of horrors happening. And if we look at where famines are today in the world, you know, in North Korea, um, and in Zimbabwe and countries like that, they are countries that are very lacking in a free press. And sort of arising from that, it's very wrong to tell this story that famine is a result of drought. As Amartya Sen shows us, famine is a result of certain parts of the population losing their entitlement to food. It's a social and a political phenomenon. It's not a natural disaster. But that is not the way that it is framed in too many, far too many news reports. And in, um, as an example, in the one, I, one I've just shown you now, I don't know if you noticed, but when the presenter introduced it, she said there is now a famine in Ethiopia which has arisen as a result of lack of rainfall. That is not the case. There's lack of rainfall in the American Midwest. There was never any famine in the American Midwest. It's particular parts of the population losing entitlements to food. So that's... That was the, a problem with the framing of the news reporting, but it was equally the case, again, with inside government. Uh, this, these news reports caused such pressure on the UK government. There were so many um, ordinary voters, ordinary members of the public, who, who were so taken with what they'd seen, who started to pressure the governments here, never mind the governments where the famine was happening, um, that inside the, um, the Overseas Development Administration, which is what's now DFID, um, which was in those days was part of the Foreign Office. They set up this, what they call, and it's called in, in the documents, the Ethiopian Drought Group. And twice a day they were meeting at that point because this became such a crisis. How are we going to respond to this? How are we going to be seen to be a caring, a caring government? So they set up this, this group which reported to the minister, the permanent secretary, uh, twice a day. But they called it the Ethiopian Drought Group. So here were the civil servants that were supposed to know about these things, supposed to understand this rather more sophisticated appreciation, and they called it the Ethiopian Drought Group. But the same was true in Ethiopia itself. Uh, it was very convenient there to say, oh, lack of rainfall, and that's caused a, um, that's caused a, a problem with food. That wasn't the case at all. This is a, a picture of the, uh, the man who was then in charge of Ethiopia, uh, um, very authoritarian communist dictator, Mengistu, um, who'd taken over from the um, emperor who'd in Haile Selassie in the, the decade, decade before. He was an extremely, extremely uh, um, nasty piece of work, 
uh, and he was fighting two huge um, guerrilla wars, secessionist wars, also in the north of Ethiopia. But you never saw any reporting of that, any news reporting of that. These were some of the biggest battles in Africa since the end of the Second World War, since El Alamein. But it never hit the news, and it was never really, really focused on in, term, in terms of the, the way journalists understood this story. Uh, because it didn't, didn't suit the Ethiopians. Sorry, when yes. you say never, it's yes. never? Like even in the press, print press? There were, well, there was a very, very occasional matters, but, but the causation was never, never made. It, it was, here's a famine, and this is caused by lack of rainfall. There were sometimes occasional mentions of some fighting, but there was no, I mean, journalists were not allowed into those parts of the world. I mean, if they were allowed, it was under extremely tight control. The hospitals where the fighters were, um, I mean, I've got all this, loads of evidence on this in the book, the actual fossil hospitals were kept totally separate from the um, from, from other from the civilian world um, and in fact even in the economist which you'd think would be you know a sophisticated publication that would that would actually understand more of this and I actually found a um, I think it was a editorial not an article it was an editorial saying um, there's a there's some difficulty here in getting the aid, you know, this is once the aid started rolling. We're having some difficulty, uh, or the, some difficulty has been experienced in getting the, the population, the aid into the populations that matter. Um, sometimes this, is, this has been caused by some, some um, insurgents and fighting. The government really ought to stop this because it's stopping the aid getting to those populations. They didn't understand that the reason the famine was happening in the first place was as a deliberate technique by the Ethiopian government. I mean, they, you know, even somebody like the Economist hadn't sort of understood what, what was a pretty, pretty, you know, if you look at it now, it was a pretty simple process. And certainly, once the, um, I mean, after the Nike Work Report, then there was a huge wave of interest in Africa. I mean, this was, was an occasion where, you know, in contrary to everything I said at the beginning, that, you know, Africa's a far-off place, very rarely gets reported, then it gets reported for the wrong reasons and you get the story wrong, and I can go on about that for, for a long time if you're, if you're interested, and lots and lots of other examples, getting back to Biafra, where the story was completely wrong. But here, again, the, the, the story, the story wasn't, wasn't, being, wasn't being told properly, and the, and the story was missing, which was the real story, that there, was, there were these massive insurgencies going on. And that's because it didn't suit the Ethiopian government to tell that story, didn't particularly suit the aid agencies to tell that story. Much more difficult to raise aid, to get people sympathetic, when it's a kind of nasty, messy, man-made crisis. If it's a very simple, straightforward crisis, God given, you know, lack of rainfall, therefore we must feel sorry for these innocent people who've been, been affected. That's a much better narrative if you're trying, trying to raise, raise funds on the back of, you know, on the back of, back of media coverage. So the more complicated story really couldn't be told. And so, as I said, after Michael Burke went there, then, you know, right around the world, people were queuing up to try and get into Ethiopia, right, right down to the kind of um, tabloids, you know, the, the, the Mirror, for example, the Daily Mirror sent a huge, with um, their uh, um, proprietor at the time, Robert Maxwell, even sort of got on a plane, chartered a plane to go out there and take some, some food for the starving. And once it got into the hands of people like that, this story, it was a, a nice, straightforward, easy to tell story. Lack of rain, people starving, send your money, and it's all going to be fine. Um, the much more complicated story, which is a much nastier, unpleasant story to tell, just vanished, vanished altogether. Um, so, 
The second fallacy that I want to draw your attention to, famine isn't a natural disaster, it's a social political phenomenon, but it didn't suit, suit anybody's agendas to, 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 try and tell, to try and tell that story, even if they could have done it. Um, and so quickly moving on to the sort of third thing I want, I want you to, to, to focus on in terms of the, again, a fallacy, I think, in the, in the terms of the way that governments reacted to, to, the, to these images and to this media coverage. Um, so the UK government was calling it a drought, and how did they respond? If you look at the Freedom of Information documents, it shows that Downing Street, and this is very much Mrs. Thatcher took control at this time, uh, wanted to intervene, and they wanted to do something, but they were very particular about what they were going to be seen to be doing to helping help these poor people. Okay? They, this was a part of it. Remember, this is the Cold War. This is a part of the communist world, part of the Russian domain. And all that the government, and Mrs. Thatcher personally in, in the documents made this clear, all the government wanted to be seen to be doing was sending the um, Royal Air Force and dropping food uh, on Ethiopia. And the reason for that is it makes wonderful images. It's, you don't get involved in kind of development work, and why would we want to be kind of getting involved in a, in a sort of communist country there and helping them when it's the Russians, that's part of the Russians' backyard and they, they should be doing it. We don't want to be, to, to be help, to help them at all and help the Russians by indirectly. But these make great pictures, lovely images of our brave boys going out there and dropping, dropping aid on, on these poor populations. But anybody who knows anything about aid is that this is the kind of, you know, the most expensive, wasteful way you can ever possibly um, help, help people just sort of dropping dropping uh, things out of the air like that. But that was the insistence. That, that's what the government said. Official aid was only going to be used on things like this, the very high-profile things, rather than kind of getting involved in long-term aid of a, of a, of a country that, that we, didn't, we didn't really much like the look of. Um, and as I said, that was the same in the United States as well. This was the height of the kind of Thatcher, Reagan loving, um, and this, they, they wanted very much to be seen to be um, to be using this as a, as a, as a way of criticising criticizing the Russians. And it also, um, it was even, not, not even as generous as, as, I, as I indicated just there. Um, when you actually go into the documents, the public story was that we are the generous government and we are giving extra money and we're going to send these flights out and, uh, and drop, this, drop this aid and, and, and the emergency aid that I said the Foreign Secretary talked about at the beginning. Um, well, actually, if you look in the documents, it all turned into a nasty fight between the, um, the Foreign Office, where the overseas development people were, and the Ministry of Defence that was flying the planes, because the number 10 Downing Street said, actually, we're not going to give any extra aid. You can go and find it from within your budgets, and you can, you can argue about it between you as to who's going to pick up the cost for these airlifts. So it was even more cynical um, than, than, than at first sight. That, um, and, and it got into a very nasty argument, which the documents show as well, between these departments sort of, you know, fighting it out between themselves as, you know, it's, you're going to pay, no, you're, you're, you're going to pay, um, pay for this. So the, the, the fallacy is that even the official aid wasn't quite what it seemed to be, and it was delivered for benefit other than sort of the foreign policy goals. Sorry, it was delivered for, on terms of other foreign policy goals in terms of sort of geopolitics, rather than being seen to just, just to be to be sending additional aid to this, this poor population. Um, and then the, the final thing I, I want to look at is um, this whole idea of private philanthropy. And some of you will remember, maybe if you weren't old enough, that this was really a 
key defining moments in, in the way that we raise um, funds as uh, uh, you know nationally in for, for faraway starving um, people. This was the first of all the band aid <coughs> Bob Geldof got his friends together and um, you know made this song that was the best selling single of, of all time at that, that point. Um, there were these huge concerts in Philadelphia and in Wembley raising raising money and the Live Aid concerts. And that's led to a whole new genre of fundraising and, and awareness and reaching different parts of, of the population that never really had thought much about faraway places in, in Africa before. Um, but this then became part of a kind of disconnected narrative, this focus on suffering without really explaining or understanding what's going on. And the... Um, this, this idea that you can, you know, sort of sing songs and buy armbands and, and be seen to care and everything, everything will work out fine. Um, and I call that sort of reporting without the politics, which, which we see an awful lot of. Um, and really which started actually, those are images from the Biafra War from, from 1967, this idea that, you know, these absolutely ghastly pictures um, should be, you know, folk, thrown in, you know, in front of people and, and to raise money and don't ask any sort of awkward, messy questions about you know whether this is really the right thing to do and try and keep the story you know as simple as possible because the problem is um, and and, and this, this is a whole genre I haven't got time to show you the video here but the, this is well, well worth looking at there's a whole phenomenon now which which is referred to as odierism reporting where it's just kind of oh dear there's another right so let, let's just be seen to care and don't get involved in this politics because the problem with the politics in so many of these situations is that it's very very messy um, it's not just one one even, even a, a good good versus a bad it may well be sort of three different you know if you look at Syria today it isn't the goodies versus the baddies it's the baddies versus sort of three different other versions of, of, of shades of, of bad um, you know, it's, there isn't a simple story to tell, and that's very difficult for aid agencies to raise money and for journalists to, to you know, to, to, to portray to an audience. And all too often, and this is from a, a BBC uh, reporter, George Aligaya, all too often you get this kind of very, very simple narrative, even today, this kind of disaster reporting. Starving child, the feeding centre, the, the white aid worker, and actually, if I'd let that footage ran a bit further on, you'd have seen the only person who spoke there, except for Michael Burke, was not a single person from Ethiopia. It was a, a French um, aid worker who was saying, oh dear, this is all terrible and I'm battling to, to, you know, to, to bring good to this country, which is sort of so much of a kind of cliche. And then, of course, the reporter saying that how, how terrible it all is. Um, and so much of this kind of still today, a lot of the aid agency narrative is, is this kind of very simplistic kind of, you know, don't worry about these complicated things, just you send the money and, and, and we'll, we'll make it all better. Um, and you get, so to finish, you really get what I call this, this sort of fourth fallacy is kind of this lack of engagement with politics. Um, you get this humanitarianism without the politics then you don't get long-term and empowering solutions because you're just looking at terrible pictures and thinking, oh dear, we'll, we'll just send some money and, and you know, help these, these people. And it leads to a story of, of hopeless victims. And you can still see that in a lot of narratives, narratives today. Um, so to, to finish, really, um, I just, you know, this, this is kind of summarise what I've said. Um, famine is not just a natural disaster. It's not a sudden event. Um, there are social and political 
origins, and we need to remember the politics when we're reporting things like that and lots of other um, catastrophes. And we should also be very careful to, uh, to analyse, as journalists also, to interrogate, you know, how does the aid benefit and to, for whose benefit and in, in what, what way is it, is it being used? And not just sort of take these, these stories as a kind of stereotyped, stereotyped package. So thank you very much.